This is episode 17 of the Smash Up Derby. We finish our conversation with Rosemary Foyer about William Setner and the rise and fall of the United Electrical Workers Union in St. Louis. In this episode, covering roughly 1945 to 1955, we hear about Setner, an open member of the Communist Party, at the peak of his influence in the labor movement and in the St. Louis area. Rosemary will cover the anti-communist purges, the raids against the United Electrical Workers, and government attacks against Setner for his communist views. The story is both tragic and inspirational. We hope you enjoy it. You know, so uh, in 1939, Sentner was the head was the head of District Eight. They had organized thousands of workers in the electrical plants, but. You know, people have this idea that the New Deal welcomed this new labor movement and that Franklin Delano Roosevelt and liberals, uh, you know, they had this wonderful coalition and all was well. But if you look at it from the position of uh, what was actually happening on the ground, you get a very different perspective. Um, the, the labor movement was being split between left and right already at that, at that time. This is the time when John L. Lewis was starting to purge the left from the CIO. You know, he had that famous uh, phrase or saying, who gets the uh, bird, the hunter or the dog, and he had seen the left as the, um, the dog in that hunt for a mass movement. He wanted a mass movement, but he wanted it controlled from the top down and for his own purposes. And so it was the beginning of a lot of tensions um, at the national level. You had, you know, in, in the St. Louis area, for instance, and not only in St. Louis, but, but in uh, Indiana and, and in Iowa, he was sending in people to basically... Um, purge the left from the CIO, which he wanted to control. And what does purging them look like? What does that mean? Is it removing them from staff positions? Yeah, removing them from staff positions and having staff set up to, to um, there was actually an agreement in the UAW in St. Louis between the company and the CIO to get rid of workers who were um, on the left. And it was a very nasty situation where um, the left who had come and helped to organize, uh, you know, some of them have, had come from Detroit and they were communist and socialist. Um, and they were really pr promoting the um, anti-racism agenda, you know, the Communist Party and their uh, activists were behind in the CIO, in the UAW. United Auto Workers. The head of the CIO, supported by John L. Lewis and supported by Philip Murray, helped to get rid of these people, meaning get, um, caused them to lose their jobs because they were activists around this issue. Um, Sentner is 
totally dependent on the democratic structure of the UE to remain. Had he been a staff person, he would have simply been purged. That's what happened in the auto workers. That's what happened in the um, steel workers. They they had a, a fantastic program going in St. Louis um, on race issues and mobilizing African American workers for the steel workers. Phil Murray came in and and just fired all those CIO people on the left. And so Setner's, though, at this, in the middle of all of this, he's elected president of District 8. And and what does it mean when, you know, a lot of people, when they think about unions, they think about, oh, it's the same old guys who get elected every time and elections aren't real. Um, How was, what were those elections like in UE? Well, uh, the way I look at it is uh, the elected local leadership had a deep relationship with Sentner, and if they were negative, they worked uh, n- against him. Um, and that, I think in 1939, uh, there was not really much of an issue. There was a group of American firsters, <laughs> in uh, which means people who were, it's like, if you think about Trump, I guess, right. uh, it's like a paper thin. But th- these were people who were almost, um, well, they were they were right wingers and they were supported by the right wing on the anti-communist agenda. They got a base in the, the UE, a very small base um, in on those issues, on those issues of America first and um um, being opposed to the war, but from a right, from going to into World War II, but from a right wing um, position, and it, it, they were easily defeated by a, another coalition. And uh, you know, it, it wasn't, in other words, just all direct democracy. The way this worked was the trusted local leaders helped to get the votes for Sentner. And they kept that, uh, the local leaders also chose to keep the agenda of his Communist Party affiliation uh, from the election decision-making. It was more about um, his effectiveness as a leader, but also um, his willingness to take on uh, uh, very challenging positions from these companies they were facing. So this was a time of building. Nobody thought, oh, we have a secure union at all. And they tended at this time to just, to trust the people who had sacrificed so much to organize them. So I think that's a large a large part of um, the the firm. He had a firm base in uh, in that period, and because what what the right did is tarnish everybody who was associated with him. So, for instance, in 1938, he was charged with criminal syndicalism in Iowa um, for his participation in a sit-down strike. And the criminal syndicalist laws had been passed in World War I, after World War One, and had been meant to destroy unionism. And so a lot of people associated the attack on him and his politics with uh, a strategy that was designed to destroy all unions. 
um, you know, I, I haven't gone too much into how they pose these large issues of unionism as part of a struggle for human rights um, and against companies that had destroyed the living wage of ordinary workers, that had pitted workers against each other. Um, so this was still that memory of those horrible and challenging struggles uh, during the Great Depression uh, sealed a lot of people's um, uh, admiration and determination to stick with him. Plus, at this time, at the national level, you had people like Jim Carrey vouching for him. Um, and Carrey was the head of the union. So, and, you know, but the, Carrey was, was also a, a, a known anti-communist, is that? Right, right. Yeah. But at this time, he was not into in, the, in that as a major oppositional force. Mm -hmm. He was still someone, at least Sentner thought he could work with somebody like him. Sentner didn't think much of him mm -hmm. as an organizer or as a president, but you know, he thought he could work with him. Well, in 39 would have been a, about the peak of popularity um, of the Communist Party in the United States. To what extent was the Communist Party a um, popular organization among workers in District 8? I would never call it a popular organization. You know, it was never popular in the sense that everybody thought, yeah, you know, um, but it was an accepted part of that scene for a, for a time until, the for, you know, until 46, 47. And I would say that um, the ease with which people could encounter it um, and not you know, have a have a lot of negative reactions was peaked in the in the war years. Actually, mm -hmm. you had this very negative um, period during the time when the Soviet Union um, allied with Hitler. You know, or right. you know, made made a truce. It was you know not necessarily an alliance, but there was at least a truce, and um, you know that just had a definite negative effect. And I think that's the time that Sentner actually just said publicly he wasn't associated with it. And I never got to the bottom of it. Was it simply something, some agreement he made, or was he, um, he was uh, abandoning it himself for a while? Um, there's not a clear discussion, but he actually has a letter in his archives in which he says he is he has uh, abandoned it. But very few people, he didn't publicly announce that. It was just a, um, a private uh, situation where he would privately say, I'm, I'm no longer a member of that. But he quietly joined again sometime after 1941. It, it made a big difference. Everything in his organizing is influenced by all these people who came from an older radical movement and made their life in the Communist Party. Well, he he would he did that, but he was never uh, he never lost his independent thinking. It's mm -hmm. it's so clear because he you could you know if you wanted to match up, here is the party line on this day with where, here is where Sentner is at. You can't do that. It's 1939. The war is um, impending. I, I assume that there's a sense that that it's going to happen. Um, what does the what does Setner do to position the UE to be effective during the war years? This is not only Setner, but is the cadre of 
rank and file and elected leadership and shop steward system they've set up that they meet regularly and they decide on policy. And he was determined that this was going to be a young person's movement, that they were going to influence the entire city. They, they were going to continue to take on the repressive employers that had governed and, and their financial backers who had governed the city. They were determined to take on race and gender issues during the war. Uh, Logston had this manifesto that no matter what, democracy, winning democracy abroad was dependent on expanding democracy at home, and that they had to do everything to make the union movement a force for social transformation. Uh, Logston is the... Um, you know, this basically the second uh, in charge of the of the district, and he was not a communist. He was had been a Socialist Party member, and then kind of comes within the orbit of a a generalized left during this period. But that is their decision. That yeah, we have um, this war, and and there's you know there's this memory of and handed down information of how World War I had destroyed the labor movement. They did not trust the CIO mm -hmm. in general to be able to negotiate all of that, to navigate all of those waters. And so, um, you know, they, they knew that they had to confront a no-strike pledge effectively, and they didn't think that contesting a no-strike pledge was a very good policy. And so the question is how in those in that time of um, you know hyper patriotism and uh, allegiance to the war, how were they going to make this union movement effective? So first thing was organizing, organizing a group of I mean organizing new units. So amazingly, Sentner actually got a government position in the small, um, manufacturing sector of the U.S. government. He had an office in D.C. Hmm. And he, they did that by contesting the way that the whole economy was managed during the war. They had a huge consortium. They, they allied with some small businesses. It's almost, uh, uh, it's just an amazing achievement. And, Not and only when you say the, they, you're talking about the U.E. as a national yeah, union? The, U, the U.E. as a local sector. This was not something that the UE at the national level was into or endorsing. But because this was, um, a lot of the economy was, um, the, the economic arrangement at the top levels of the U.S. government was basically to give contracts to large companies and then have the large companies uh, funnel uh, subsidiary contracts to whomever they wanted. And the union in the District 8 uh, allied with small business to contest that. And that's when this, um, when Sentner became a powerful force. It was just they out-organized. And even the small companies, so, in you know, the, the war is uh, transforming the economy. And it's basically... Um, being organized, they see, even these small companies see that it's being organized from a top-down, win the war, give the contracts to GM, to GE. You know, Sentner's saying, basically, where are the workers in this equation? Why don't workers have the power to say, here's our plant. We no longer make motors for fans, but we can make motors for um, helicopters and 
airplanes and we can make uh, we the workers can have a role in actually deciding what is produced and how it is produced philip murray had made this proposal at the beginning of the war he said um you know he's the C- he's a cio leader and he basically said we can't have the government planned by are the government contracts planned by large businesses and if you allow unions to have a role in auto in the trans you know the the transformation of these plants into war producing uh, products, you know wartime producing products. Um, you know that that would be a better way to organize the economy. But he quickly gave up on that, and Sentner and. Logsdon and the UE took a different approach is rather than talking to people at the top, they organized conferences. They organized one in Chicago, one in Iowa, and uh, one in Indiana. And they got the, co- the small companies in league with them um, and supporting them. And in fact, in one, one of uh, Sentner's letters from this manufacturer, this small uh, manufacturer, the guy says, uh, you know, that he has great admiration and he's really in support of this kind of wartime planning. So some of the, there was, he perhaps naively, in retrospect, it might have been a naive notion that you could bring along these small companies uh, to support wor- worker empowerment uh, through their own individualistic uh, interest, mm-hmm. but it seemed to be possible for a while. So he actually ended up helping those companies get some contracts, and they owed him in right. a way. And so he was um, able, in some ways, he was able to divide the, you know, the big companies against the little companies, and and sort of in in the quest for workers' power, right? Yeah. And, and I so think they, people um, would be, they, I think, like young, young, like. Socialists today might be surprised that he, you know, he was willing to build that kind of coalition. Um, yes. But it's just, it's, it's such a practical move, right? Right. And it, it, um, it was a way that his um, political beliefs also became more acceptable. And uh, he always made this argument, it was kind of humorous, that people liked socialism and until they heard the word. And in other words, he saw this as, you know, worker empowerment to plan the economy, um, kind of bottom-up five-year plan. If people know the history of the Soviet Union, it was, you know, top-down planning, really imposed planning. And he always thought of um, any kind of socialist planning for the economy would be done with workers. So one of the things where was a very dramatic illustration of that, he had a wartime plan or a post-war planning conference in 1944, and they took delegates, from, uh, elected delegates from each plant, and they brought them. So, you know, if you um, go on the website that I have, you'll see these African-American women sitting at the seat of government planning and having a, a possibility for debate. What do workers come up with? They come up with uh um, an endorsement of a plan for a 30-hour work week in the aftermath of the war for e- of equal access of African Americans for jobs in the plants and uh, women uh, being able to work at any job that they wanted. 
Um, but they they said, you know, you really will will have to plan for the post-war, and workers will have to be a part of that. And so he, you know, used that early war, wartime planning to say, well, you know, nobody thinks this economy is going to just pick up and revive on its own. We have to have some kind of planning, and workers will be involved in it. And in the book, I describe the the kind of planning that comes about um, during the war that's uh, based on, it, it becomes based on an environment, an environmentalist agenda, what you could, you would term now an environmentalist agenda of reclamation of, um, of areas that had been destroyed by floods and by corporate agricultural uh, decision making. Um, and, and that becomes a huge popular, it's called the Missouri Valley Authority planning authority, um, popular populist um, goal for the post-war. And it seems that it is also, I mean, it's such a huge coalition coming out of the war that it had not had this, um, had this factionalism not developed. I think, you know, it, it quite I think it would have been quite possible that it would have succeeded. So the Missouri Valley Authority is a is a proposal that they've developed that Setner and the UE build a coalition around. Is that the idea? Yes. Yeah, the the UE is the main force in the CIO, and the CIO comes uh, full fledged behind it. It becomes part of the 1946 platform of the CIO. So it's the last gasp of both both community-based planning for um, the post-war and uh, a coalitional building that is um, tremendous. It, it is, uh, involves farmers. It involves people who would be called proto-environmentalists of the period. That's a very small group um, of people, but they 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 are influential enough, the farmers actually are influential enough that they shift in this coalition, they shift the UE's focus on electrification and uh, what you might think of as the bread and butter issues of, a, of an electrical union, right? Well, let's, let's just have planning that electrifies everything mm-hmm. to a, a, uh, a kind of conversion based on you know, making decent recreational areas. So they thought they could have a WPA style program of employment around recreation and reclamation. So there, you need to understand that the floods that had happened are similar to the kind of destruction we have with global warming now, where the Army Corps of Engineers had tried to, let's say, manage Mother Earth. (laughs) Uh, Let's say, uh, you know, they had basically tried to dredge uh, the Missouri River and the Mississippi River over time. And it just was like, you know, it's like Sisyphus (laughs) just Mm -hmm. trying to to rebuild the mountain. And uh, the union tried to say, let's have a TVA, a Tennessee Valley Authority kind of plan where you really bring together a coalition of people. And instead of TVA, which was quite controlled top down, we will have workers involved in this planning board. And what they did then was reach out to the farmers who had been dealing with record flood floods from the terrible planning of the um, Army Corps of Engineers. You know, the PIP plan 
um, which was endorsed and really just rubber stamped by the Army Corps of Engineers, would have uh, built levees. And the farmers knew that these levees, <laughs> it's just like they work for a while and then they don't. And right. so they, they were uh, a coalition group that came together with the unions and said, together, we've got to put a stop to that plan. And so they were willing to work with each other. And interestingly, it was the farmers and this farm, the old farm labor coalition, if you're going to call it the left-wing agricultural block that had, um, had been in, in place all the way from North Dakota um, and left-wing farm bureau or farm organizations that were against the Farm Bureau um, from the 1920s came together and and reorganized themselves together with the UE, um, bringing in everybody from auto workers who had been in the farm areas in the past and had a connection to that, and they they were really wanting to make plans. So it was a jobs program. But it was also this notion that, you know, ordinary people could be a force for for making the government responsive um, to the needs of communities and actually having planning. So some liberals had been left-wing um, part of the liberal coalition had been in favor of that in the New Deal. Um, and and they wanted to expand on it. It was the force that would expand on it. They also got liberals involved. So this is um, you know the popular front um, idea too. The idea of let's let's make um, a pragmatic plan, um, but you really challenge the premises of capitalist society, which is that private decision making is the best decision making. The Army Corps was always controlled by the electric, you know, the the uh, planning of the Army Corps of Engineers was always controlled by the large farmers and by interests that thought that you should irrigate the entire country. Mm-hmm. And you could irrigate the desert. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was controlled by electrical companies. So there were a lot of private interests involved in these kind of decisions. Oh, and by dredging companies and by um, internal, you know, boat companies. That's Harry Truman was funded effectively by those people. So he was president um, right after the war. And so those interests, electrical companies, um, you know, were were really um, involved in this kind of government planning. And so what is happening here is that you basically make the case that there could be better planning, more rational planning by workers and uh, opening up planning for job creation to ordinary workers. And what happens to the Missouri Valley proposal? It Is looks it- like it's going to pass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, um, you know, they get in coalition, by the way, with the one group in the government, the um, Rural Electrification Administration, and they have a lot of, um, you know, they this group is um, revived in an attempt to see this plan through. Harry Truman, who um, is before he's um, you know suddenly thrust into the position of presidency, endorses it. Um, the CIO makes it 
you know, the main platform of 1944 and sustains it through 48. They're really pushing it. They back the Pick Sloan plan down. It looks like it's going to be achieved legislatively. But um, Harry Truman actually maneuvers in the Senate. He's vice president, but he maneuvers in the Senate to take it um, in another to take it off the agenda. And then in the midst of this in 1945, I mean, there's a it's still a coalition together, and they're working um, to get it. Um, to uh, move forward despite that glitch in their planning. They still see it. It's like there was a poll done in 1948, and this plan had such high approval rating among the public that everybody thought that eventually it would pass. Universal planning was highly popular in the post-war era until of course, the red baiting, until people started the electrical companies and the Army Corps of Engineers and the business groups in the post-war started labeling it as socialist and, and communist-inspired. And that, that really created um, significant problems for that coalition. But I, I would argue that the main problem was the CIO not doing its part. The CIO started to be um, more interested in purging its left than promoting this plan. Mm-hmm. It's one of the big losses then of sort of that vision of planning and, and development mm-hmm. um, gets and sort of cut, cut at its knees. Right, of, of radical unionism. So, mm-hmm. you know, here is something that takes on marketplace economics, you know, the thing that we're looking at now. The Great Depression had poked a hole in that, and the war then seemed to be sewing things up for capitalist direction of the economy, right? That you had private groups and small numbers of people. And here's something that said, we'll have a populist. And, you know, it's a, it's a different, it's a vision of populism that says you can use the government to counter private power. You know, one of the justifications I would have for calling this radical unionism, this is not um, just getting better wages for workers, but actually saying that workers should direct the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is quite a, ra- it's a radical idea now, of course. Well, <laughs> and and- it was truly radical then, but you could, you had groups of people talking about it and the CIO actually endorsing this, um, not just saying, well, for a marginal part of the economy or for a new part of the economy like healthcare, we're going to make government available health care. But this is like taking on the private sector effectively and saying we're going to have jobs created by a coalition of people in a planning organization. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it is extraordinary in my opinion. People like Stuart Symington, who was the head of Emerson Electric, actually seems to be backing this idea. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of wiggly and, you know, yeah. uh, he, he squirms out of things a lot, but um, he seems to be a possible ally. There are some other small businesses um, that endorse this, but that all fades away after the war, too. Um, but it doesn't mean that they think that there's no possibility for it in the aftermath of the war. You've opened Pandora's box because the war 
basically everybody knows it's planned Mm -hmm. and their part of the planning means to be good servants you know to have the war said you can't strike or the wartime authorities say you can't strike you can't have wages higher than 15% above what you started at the war. The only way that you could earn more money was working yourself to the, you know, to to distraction and sacrificing your family. Um, So, you know, meanwhile, a lot of the big companies are getting rich Mm -hmm. and from the war. So there's an opening there. And it doesn't get taken up by the CIO. They don't have. They, they basically are good soldiers for the war, and they focus mostly on their own sectors. You know, the idea of increasing the wages, increasing benefits. True, but they don't look at this in terms of challenging uh, capitalist structures. And during the war, what is, um, I assume the UE in St. Louis must have grown greatly and then um, then reduced in membership uh, in 46 and so. You know, so the small arms plant uh, goes away. And so, um, so that they get that organized in 44 and probably it's gone <laughs> within by a year 46, or two. By 46, right, by, by uh, 46, there's maybe 100 people left. Mm-hmm. There's still, you know, basically um, inventory and so forth. They're having to deal with some of that. But, yeah, by by 45, it's uh, the war is winding down. November 45, basically, it's over, right? In uh, St. Louis, there's a lot of unemployment, and they're organizing again the unemployed for as a coalition base. Um, in Evansville, though, it's been a long ten years, and they're finally winning over uh, the most recalcitrant companies like Bucyrus Erie and Cervell. Cervell had been, you know, the head honcho, the head of uh, Cervell was was the. Um, main leader of the National Metal Trades Association, which is the main anti-union force in the um, in the country. I would mm-hmm. say it's one of the, you know, the National Association of Manufacturers types, those people who serve the purpose of of challenging unions. I mean it's their their main their main purpose. Anyway, they had been trying to organize, workers had tried to organize Sovell since 1933. The UE had come in in 1937 and 38 with a campaign and just got slaughtered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with, with they got charges of criminal syndicalism and, uh, and beat up by, a, it's almost like a little police state in Evansville. They stick around and by, thir- by 46 they're winning these elections. Um, and taking on and uh, Charles, this uh, uh, guy named Ruthenberg, who's this extremely sent, uh, you know, almost a proto-fascist anti-unionist in the Midwest, and uh, they're they're victorious. This was really part of their plan to dig in and, and become part of the community that they right. realized that they couldn't. They couldn't just show up and ask people to sign union cards. They had right. to really camp out. And yeah, they they literally camped out. I think um, you know you can find a, a 
you know, they, they actually had a, a tent um, that they set up outside nearby that headquarters. And they had a tent um, through, I think, 44 through 48 that was set up there regularly and this was not their idea this was this came from the uh, actually i think from decades of organizing with mine workers in the area uh, in the late 19th century the mine unions would set up encampments to organize they workers would march from plant or from tipple mine tipple to mine tipple anyway they they took this idea and said, okay, you know, we're going to have this symbolic tent set up <laughs> that mm-hmm. we're here. You know, we may not even have offices, but if you want to come and talk to us, here we are. They they were victorious through that kind of strategy. Uh, this victory in Evansville was stunning in the Midwest because everyone knew that it was... Um, it was the holdout anti-unionist. And by the way, this was their strategy. In 46, the UE um, and the um, CIO start to think about how to organize the South. And they say, you organize it the way we organized Evansville. It's not going to be a short-term thing. It's going to be long-term. And we need to set up and commit ourselves to that. That's very different from the way the CIO did. The CIO had blitz or what we would call blitz organizing today. Mm-hmm. Mostly they went down there and they had these, you know, organizers come in and send out leaflets. The UE did not believe in that. They, of course, used leaflets. But this experience in Evansville was really important for them to think about how you organize the South. I mean, it, people have to know Evansville, Indiana, is the South, by the way. Right, right. Um, it's got a Southern, it has a Southern culture, and uh, they had learned, and, and they really made a campaign to listen, you know, to ask the CIO to listen to us. And the CIO, by that time, was wanting no UE involved in that campaign. Uh, that larger campaign in the South, the UE and especially District 8, 8 was taking their campaigns to Tennessee, to Arkansas. Um, District 8 was organizing there and organizing successfully in that early period. Bef- again, I have to keep saying this, before the purges start right, happening right. in this campaign uh, against them, um, the the UE was really influencing. There, there's a group of people who are based in Evansville who become the base for um, campaigns that influence the civil rights movement later. And there is a, a a group of people who commit themselves to um, the UE and the left. Uh, and one of them is Carl Braden and Ann Braden, and they become. There's a wonderful book, uh, Catherine by Catherine Fossil on Ann Braden. And when I was doing interviews with Mrs. Sentner, she's like, all of their ideas for the civil rights campaign came from their involvement in the UE and this community-based unionism, you know, to be a, a presence in these areas. Um, and the idea of challenging human rights and civil rights making that connected to economic rights is part of uh, a part is part of that campaign when do you start seeing real attacks on Setner um, because of his affiliation with the Communist Party um, 
and just because of his politics in general. Um, well, I mean, the the the, um, the attacks start in uh, 1946, and they are part of a, an internal campaign um, in the UE, organized um, from by Jim Click, and Jim Click, um, you know, he was. Uh, had been part of the union from the beginning, but he is getting signals from the CIO in St. Louis. The UE is the biggest union. It has um, the the ability to, I guess, power the um, the CIO and and wield votes. The only way that the UE can't call those shots. Is, I mean, the um, CIO can't call the shots is by if everybody else organizing against the UE, and so <laughs> that's a, that's what happens at the CIO level. And so, who's James Click? James Click is a you know a um, the local president of the Emerson Emerson local. He had been in coalition with Sentner throughout the war, but he talks to and gets involved with other uh, left and liberal groups, socialist and um, anti-socialist, including some really right-wing extremists and the CIO to organize against Logsdon, against Sentner, and against the people who are associated with them. So it's a St. Louis-based campaign. The main force for it is a Catholic priest, Leo Brown, who starts a school during the war. 1944, he starts the St. Louis um, Labor School, and it's a Jesuit organized and funded school to help weed the Unionists out of the CIO. So most Catholics are actually in support of Sentner and the to, CIO. Most to of the other the, Catholic weed the communists out of the CIO. I'm sorry, did I say yeah? You, to, you, weed, um, yeah. to weed the communists out. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a you know obviously the idea that the communists are part of it is not sanctioned by the church hierarchy, and so they actually give him this job. Um, he's also made his mark on the CIO by being an arbitrator, and he's um, so he's well-known quantity. And so they he starts organizing them. That is, um, I guess, a, an, a, another community-based counter to the the left of the CIO, the Communist Party role in this in the CIO. They don't get very far at first, you know. The the union. Uh, they're, um, in 1945, they make this big campaign to organize against the union, and you had you know a little bit of CIO support for, and it's really an undemocratic intervention into the uh, affairs of a union, a member union of the CIO, and it's a lot of workers think it's not not right for them to be doing this, and so they anyway they vote for Sentner, and they you know they he wins that election. A large part of it though is the Evansville vote, you know, which is solidly um, organized behind. Sentner, Logston, and Jim Payne and others. Uh, Jim Payne is an open communist member in Evansville, mm-hmm. and so a lot of um, a lot of people. They, it just doesn't matter to them yet. This this issue is not the main one they're worried about. They're worried about their jobs, about what's going to happen in the aftermath of the war. 
it, even though this is a, it, you could argue this is a bottom-up campaign, it wouldn't have worked without a tremendous amount of funding. Mm-hmm. One of the funders is some these anti-communist groups that are anti-union. I think there's other evidence that the funding is coming from the FBI even at this point, because that's who's funding some of these um, right-wing or at least helping some of these right-wing groups, the, the, the people who are associated with it. That's based on a evidence I pre- I've researched after the book was published. But you and have these operatives going around and helping. So some of the operatives are, are the people who were against unions altogether, who are funded by businesses and hyper-patriotist, pa- patriotic groups, um, jingoist groups in the um, in the war's aftermath, you know they come together and they basically are doing what they what what groups did after World War One. They come together with the cardinal mission of promoting patriotism, not communism, and their and their target is the unions. And what are they um, doing? They're going to the shop floors with leaflets? They're going to union meetings? Not not the shop floors, but but funding uh, papers that are distributed, yes, at on the shop floor. Mm-hmm. So one of them is today's, was this notorious neo-fascist almost group, Today's World, um, which becomes, um, you know, I mean, it's a slick paper that is distributed widely against the workers, and they they make all these charges about uh, <clears throat> statements that Sentner is, you know, trying to destroy the family. You know, what mm-hmm. communists believe is destruction of the family. So they all the things that we'd be familiar with. Uh, regarding Christian fundamentalism is their main approach. In fact, some I, one worker, having seen this, said, you know, I didn't know that you were, um, you know, you had these beliefs. And Sentner writes him a letter saying, yes, I'm a communist, but it doesn't mean that I believe in destruction of the family. I have a family, too. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so it's that kind of um, fundamentalist Christian fundamentalism that they work into this as a as a means to work making workers very worried about what the what underhanded agenda these communists have but it sounds like this doesn't have much purchase at the beginning partly because you know Setner's union credentials are so strong workers know right. he's fighting for them right you know. and and um you know it's it's a yeah, a lot of people, a lot of the shop stewards, though, and this is where uh, there's some, it's a little bit messier, is that the shop stewards start saying to Sentner, why do we have to have this burden? Mm-hmm. You're making a burden for us. You need to. Through, through your affiliation the party. with the party. Yeah, uh-huh. the, the party is so problematic. We want you to drop your affiliation. And that becomes a, a tension that had never been there before, where the shop stewards who really support Sentner and all the openness that they had been able to engage in and on civil rights ground, they'd say, hey, this is a, my civil right to belong to a party. And, of course, the party was legal still. You have to keep that in mind, that there was nothing illegal about the party. Anybody can belong to it. And so they, you know, he had to keep making that claim, which is, hey, this is a legal party. I should have the right to belong to anything. But the shop stewards didn't buy that 
for very long. They mm-hmm. started getting pretty upset with Sentner because they thought he could, if he just said, I'm a socialist, small s, there would have been no issue at all. And I think that would have been true mm-hmm. if he had just said, I am a socialist, but I am not a Communist Party member, he would not have been purged. So why doesn't he just do that? Why doesn't he take their advice? That's, um, well, I can tell you what he says. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he he basically says, you know, I don't believe that that's the case. He thinks that people are always going to say he's, and that the, the game of the House on American Activities campaign and all the anti-communist is that they wouldn't stop at that. They'd have to renounce people and renounce all of the uh, allegiances. And and I think there's some merit to that view that, yes, that is what they ultimately wanted to do. It's just like um, a witch hunt where you have to denounce everybody you know and uh, not sure, just sure. be neutral. Where you end up like a centrist neoliberal president, accused <laughs> of being a socialist, right? <laughs> right. That's uh, that's that. That in other words, when you when when they put that kind of choice, and the government was putting that, ultimately it would be the government that put that with the House on American Activities Committee. You know, it was why um, people refused to testify because to testify would mean to basically force you into uh, this narrow position. Um, I think, you know, th- there's a merit to both arguments, right? Live to fight another day. He, he was a pragmatic person. Maybe he, he might have uh, done that. I think, I think his son felt that way. Um, I got all of the papers from the Sentinel and I sent in her family um, that are now deposited in, in an archives. But you know, he his son felt that way that you know maybe his pragmatism should have extended to this, um, and to see it all washed away, you know, in the in the 40s and 50s to see the largest union that the, that the CIO was willing to sacrifice the largest union was painful to everybody who had taken so much time to build it. So how does this play out in terms of the UE then? So Click, he he's hooked up with this Catholic labor school um, in St. Louis. Click is the president Click, of... Click, by the way, is an atheist, and he is very yeah. interesting. Nobody ever goes around asking him. I mean, people ask Sentinel all the time, are you an atheist? Right. Nobody asks Nobody Click. Asks Click. It was really surprising to me to find this out. You know, but he's allying with these right-wing Christian fundamentalists and, right. you know, um, and serving Click, his purpose. And Click is coming out of Emerson, which is interesting because Emerson's the place where there's the sit-down strike, but it's also the place where um, where they had, where, where Setner had uh, essentially a fight against some of the workers over racial equality, too. Right. Yes, and that, that, that actually gives leverage. And in both the small arms plant and the um, Emerson especially, they, these were two places where Sentner's agenda um, is influenced by the Communist Party agenda, which is the best 
um, workers-based organization for fighting racism internally in the CIO, and you have to give it credit for that. There's no question, hands down. Some people try to argue against that, some historians, but I would say that when I everything I've looked at says this is this is one of the things that Sentner values. You know, his mm-hmm. whole his mind is transformed about you know the race issue and putting African American workers up front. So he does that. And he does it with great effect and uh, has a, a significant allegiance among a minority population. Now, when, you know, when the small arms plant had a lot of African-Americans, they were backing him um, fully, but they get laid off first. He campaigns against that layoff of African-Americans. And when he campaigns, you know, that, they, that he thinks they should have, um, they should be some... I guess some amendment to this idea of strict seniority, suggesting that, you know, we shouldn't always have blacks the um, last hired, first fired. And so he um, he pays a, a dear price for that, and that some workers who think seniority is sacrosanct. He Does he argue for that at Emerson as yes. well? He yeah. argues that for that at Emerson and at the small arms plant. And um, Logston said it was just a disaster because the, the, this, the, this is something that workers agreed on. He said even black workers agreed on the principle of seniority until they faced the facts that, you know, layoffs. It's, it's all great when it's about moving up to jobs and having a universal seniority. And that's what the UE was pushing. Like, okay, if, I, if I've been at this job and I'm an African-American or a woman, I get to bid into the better jobs on a basis of seniority. Mm-hmm. But they, when, when it's on layoffs, you know, it's a much more problematic if you have black workers hired last and women workers hired last. So, you know, you, you either have to be universally, they argued, you have to be universally for it or you can't make this kind of amendment. So anyway, the, you know, but Sentner, you, you couldn't control the, the, the shop stewards, you know, quickly said, no, we're going to have just strict seniority. But his allegiance to that issue you know, was was part of the fuel for uh, the right wing groups who were clearly racist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just that that's part of the coalition is this race these racist groups who quietly they certainly didn't do this openly, who quietly promoted the idea that Sentner, you know, his communism would mean that African Americans got priority. What happens then with so Click tries to uh, does Click try to run for president of the district? Yes, and then he yeah he he's, in forty six and he loses right mm-hmm, he loses right so it seems like it's going to be you know let's get back to business but then the um, you know Iron Curtain speech <laughs> happens and the government gets involved in this purge um, as well as the CIO. The CIO wants to prove that it's a red-blooded American organization, and so it starts to fund um, this campaign. The CIO comes in in a massive way. I mean, 10 organizers, you know, brought in. To St. Louis. To St. Louis, yeah. And so the it's goal, a with huge the goal camp- of? Destroying the UE. Uh, yeah, the union, yeah, the yeah. UE. The CIO helps to fund the International Union of Electrical Wait a minute, what does it stand? Yeah, International Union of Electrical Workers, the IUE. The um, so the, these anti-left forces 
an alternate method of taking power. You don't have to contest internally. And and it's, um, you know, the UE after October 1949 is one of the 11 unions are basically ousted from... that, that are cl- they claim that they're communist-dominated, and they set up rival unions, and one of them is the IUE, the international. So the UE now is split. Uh, are they're, they're now contesting elections in which organizers come in, and it's so important to recognize, um, you know, the go- these government authorities who come in to plants you know, in the, in the at the dawn of the Cold War and say, you know, this company is have might have a small contract, you wouldn't get it. Um, you won't get it if you have people who are communist. We're fighting the Soviet Union, right? We're going to be fighting the Soviet Union. You know, we don't want to give contracts to a union when the union might be sabotaging. So now you get the sabotaging. The Cold War dawns as a as a kind of tool that can be used to make workers think this is an issue that we want to get off our plate. Nevertheless, it's really close, for instance, at Wagner Electric, where you have a significant African-American population. They almost win that one. Um, so, but, so essentially what's happening is these the organizers are coming in. There, There's this sort of union on paper called the IUE, and they're mm-hmm. running elections against the UE to move workers from the UE to the IUE. Right. Yeah. And and they're doing this at all the big plants. And I assume at Emerson, which is the the point. The and in Evansville, everywhere. They're, they're, it's all over. You know, and they, they um, the, you know, Sentner is, d- decides, again, this is the pragmatic, hey, it's time to give up and merge with a different union. Mm-hmm. And he's, so they, the remaining union locals by the 50s go with, um, the majority go with the machinist. So that's interesting. So the IUE comes, it raids, it raids the UE. This is essentially the CIO, the leadership, the CIO comes, it raids the district. It probably takes out Emerson, Wagner, and the, essentially the big shops. Is that what happens? Mm-hmm. Emerson probably Louis. leads, and em- then you know, in Evansville, it's much more contested, and um, the the they have a a dynamic leadership that uh, preserves the union, but it's isolated now, and mm-hmm. so they make the decision that they, and by then, by the way, Sentner is um, by the time they do this, Sentner is gone, so he loses, um, he he resigns. He's basically, he's facing persecution through the House Un-American Activities Committee, through the FBI. His wife is threatened with deportation. So they go at a very personal level. Um, Sentner becomes part of the uh, purge trials organized by the FBI beginning in 1954. And he, you know, basically says, I got to devote my time to that. And he he leaves. Um and it's uh, so he so resi- when does he resign from the union? I think fifty two. Okay. Yeah, so, this is starting up in fifty two, um, and and uh, up until then he's been he's elected. arrested. You know, he's arrested under I should mention he's arrested under the Smith Act, hmm. um, and uh, you know faces the prosecution that he's a subversive threat and that he's going to 
ha- he's conspiring to overthrow the U.S. government. That's mm-hmm. the charge. Um, and the Smith Act also, you know, targeted uh, tr- trade unionists. I mean, a lot of them, uh, uh, as early as 1941, the Smith Act was put into, was passed, and the first target was Teamsters in, 19, in, in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. They were socialists. They were members of the Trotskyist group. Um, but this was, it said, I think, Hoover's, Suggestion is that the Communist Party isn't powerful unless they have this union base. So a lot of this was, in, in their minds, a, an attack on the left and the unions. And and, uh, and it was, you know, the FBI thought that the Smith Act, uh, the this these were yeah kind of show showcasing the dangers of communists. Anyway, Sentner was one of the people who was charged. Were there other people in the district that? Were charged or were brought before HUAC or were? Oh sure, yeah, there were. Um, you know, there was investigations in of the communist flu- influence in St. Louis, and it was a lot. It was Jim Payne, Henry Fearing was brought before it. Henry wasn't even in St. Louis by then, but it was just bringing them back to um, show, you know, how dangerous they were. Uh, Red Davis. So there were a number of uh, unionists who were who were brought before HUAC and along a committee. And I think the most effective was not even the HUAC, though. There was another um, hearing in Evansville that was brought by the House Education and Labor Committee. So people think it's only HUAC, but it's like these other instruments of government, these, um, you know, Right-wingers used whatever instrument they could, so they brought in hearings when the um, when workers had a strike and tried to prove that this House Education and Labor Committee hearing tried to prove that these workers were influenced by communists instead of it just being a strike. So, for instance, they they brought in these. I mean, it's just an amazing example. They brought in these um, workers that were organizing. And they asked them to reveal their address. And at the end of the hearing, they said, if you want, you know, if you want to clean up your act, you'll go and tar and feather these workers. And they actually, some, a gang of people went and tried to tar and feather them. They were driven out of their homes. Some of them had mortgages. They had actually bought their home and they were driven out of town. Like they had no rights at all. And, and, and so they, that was a, such an effective thing to, to advertise their home address that they could be terrorized in Evansville. They would hold these uh, these uh, hearings then in St. Louis or in Evansville. Or at the local, yeah, so that so that it was really close to home. They would go on site. It wasn't like going to Washington D.C. and testifying and nobody was paying attention. This was front page headlines, and especially when workers were going on strike, they came up with all sorts of innovative ideas. Like they were uh, um, the one company. Um, had a, a contract with the Atomic Energy Commission. They said, "Oh, you know, this you can't have contracts going to companies that have communists involved." And um, and so anyway, there was all these that that that's that publicity and showcasing that happened. But even though um, even though some of the big locals leave the union in the in the forties. Um, the the district holds together, and Sentner keeps getting elected president. Is that right? 
Yes. And then he, well, he steps aside and puts, um, what they do is they put a, a, a somebody else up for president during part of that, and then he becomes business agent. I that see. guy appoints him business agent. So that's how they initially. And again, that wasn't his strategy. That was the shop steward saying, "This is the way it's going to be." Uh-huh. You know, so they were they're giving Sentner. They're like, if you want to, you know, if you won't give up your. Um, uh, party membership. This is the way it's going to be, and it's a democratic union. So he agrees to that. He's still, you know, organizing as part of it until he resigns. What happens to him after he resigns? Well, you know, his wife is persecuted. She had never um, become a citizen. She had gone to grown up in a small mining town, and. Uh, it had never been a problem, even during the 1930s, that she hadn't become a citizen. But the fact that she hadn't become, um, you know, makes her a target. They, they're going to get to him by deporting her. So it's really such a, an ugly campaign. She is not a member of the Communist Party, hadn't been for, she had joined for a short time. And she's basically, you know, very politically aware person, don't get me wrong, but she is persecuted under immigration laws, later under the McCarran Act, which um, targeted uh, foreign nationals, right? And she was named one of the 86 top communists in the United States, you know, mm-hmm. and... Uh, but basically, they're trying to get at him by try- so they had to fight the, these deportation campaigns. The only reason she wasn't deported is Croatia, her home country, refused to accept her. You know, it saves her from being deported. But she was persecuted through the '70s. When I interviewed her in the early '90s, she said she was still having to report. She couldn't. She could not travel from California to New Mexico without having to inform them, even in the 80s, because of this. Having to so she had to inform the authority. FBI she, if she, she was... Basic, yeah, she had to tell the FBI wherever she went. Uh, she couldn't travel abroad. So this had, you know, still was something they kept it up. <laughs> mm. um, so he, you know, he had to fight, he was fighting that, he was fighting these uh, these persecutions, and then he went to work as a carpenter. There was a bit of a movement in, in early 1954 within the um, union movement because of, you know, some economic downturn, and it seemed like he might begin to be influential in the CIO. I mean, they had they had won everything. Then they they merged, right, um, with um, the AFL, and all of those campaigns just died a quick death. Right. So so step back, explain that again. So he was he was working as a carpenter, um, mm-hmm. and he was was he a member of the carpenters union? Is that what? You're yeah, saying? for yeah. a while. But mostly he was getting non-union. Even there, it dogged him. He couldn't get a union yeah. uh, carpenter's job because it was their job to ensure that none of these people got work. Right. So this was, you know, an internal campaign that was uh, fed by, pro- I mean, the very real problems of how the CIO, I mean, I mean, the CP was was acting at this time. The CP was going underground. They were predicting a fascist takeover of the government mm-hmm. um, you know so they there was a, a high degree of paranoia at that time 
he took odd jobs. He was um, he became a maintenance carpenter at Barnes Hospital and major hospital, and it was through uh, some ethnic and. Um, other contacts that family contacts and, uh, interestingly enough he uh, he was in a part of the city that was um, overwhelmingly African American by then and he ran to on a uh, campaign to revise the city charter into this you know they were there's like a special election and he won like a just no, no, I'm sorry he didn't win he he almost won um and uh you know it's like oh the communist party is rearing its head again he he had left the communist party by then mm-hmm. it was basically the revelations about stalin that uh he uh, he was very regretful after that about having defended a party that, you know, when the revelations, I guess he had, you know, he's one of those people who had suspended judgment about mm-hmm. what was going on abroad. When he, that was revealed, um, it was a very, he was very despondent about all of the um, revelations about what Stalin had done when Khrushchev in 1957 made his big speech saying, yes, all of this had been done in the name of socialism confirmed the purge the purges and the deaths and murders the, the murderous um, mm-hmm. Stalin that um, you know he was no longer able to defend that party and so for him you know some people stayed and and that, but he, that he and his wife you know didn't but he still was associated with all those people that was part of his the base of people the base of friendships was made among people who had been in the CP they may have an independent thinking about it and didn't pay too much attention you know you can fault them for that like what is the party that we're associated with right right but you know, you can understand on a day-to-day basis, that wasn't much of a concern to them, right. what was going on abroad. And with the UE, in District 8 is reduced to um, much, it's a much smaller oh. part, and it makes a decision then at one of the con- uh, conventions, uh, one of the district conventions, to leave the UE. Yes, I think uh, that's, and, and Sentner is no longer, I believe, you know, employed there when that happens. This is uh, people like Bob Logston is, um, Logston, you know, makes a deal. Basically, I'll bring these locals in as long as, you know, you allow us to keep some of, it was keep some of the people who had been representatives um, they make that transfer, so that's part of their deal. It's with the machinists. With the machinists, the machinist union. And they're looking, I mean, Logs, and I asked Logson about the machinists, and he said, well, it was the closest to the UE. Uh, going into the IUE, it was, a, it was not a very democratic union, in his opinion. And he knew that basically they would be purged. So it was the idea of fighting, uh, living to fight another day. He said it wasn't the union, UE, but it had a decentralized the, a structure. So their district was able to make some decisions about self-governance that they wouldn't have been able to make. You know, whether that was the real motivation or whether it was just, well, I'll keep my job mm-hmm. is another question. His claim was that that base was um, 
the beginnings of the rise of people like Wimpersinger. You know, Wimpersinger's a socialist in the 70s. And he's like, you could, somebody could trace his rise to some of this some of this influence from right. the, uh, the purges. So right. Wimpa Singer is a, is the socialist leader of the machinist union who comes right. in the 70s, and you can sort of trace, you're saying you can trace yeah. his, his rise well, back I'm to the Well, I'm not saying that is, that's what, uh, that's what Logson told me, is that, you know, uh, there was room for that kind of political organization once the, once the Red Scare died down. You know, by the way, they had a number of trials, and people did lose their jobs who were uh, still communists. I mean, Logston wasn't a party member. He kept his. But once they did merge, they purged. Uh, I think Jim Payne um, was one of them that was purged. Mm-hmm. Um, and others who who had been so openly associated. Um, Logston said, though, he had a great time organizing. They gave him pretty good latitude to organize on the basis that he he did compared to the IUE. The IUE was completely messed up. I mean, mm-hmm. even Click had uh, he Click, Click who had purged the CP now had to be involved in purging the uh, <laughs> the 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 IUE of some real bad apples. They um, were they were really I mean really anti democratic kind yes. of forces inside the IUE. And, and the what's and crazy what, people. I mean, his click said, you know, they've got uh, Carrie on tape cackling at himself. He was really. He said he, he thought he was certifiably insane. Hmm. And yeah, this, uh, and this is maniac and just an ineffective union for the longest time. So here, you know, people wonder why. Oh, you have a decline in in. Uh, organizing and membership when you see how these purges affected both these unions, right? You're scrambling at a time. And and the main agenda of the CIO seems to be to get rid of the very union unionists who understand capitalism mm-hmm. and that it's not just, you know, a bed of roses now that the United States is the world economic leader. You know, there are forces that completely organized. So, you know, the, the, the typical mantra is that you you had um, labor management peace until the 1970s when, um, you know, the, the United States world dominancy of the economy seems to be challenged. So that's, that's at least what uh, some people argue. And all I see is that employers never stopped organizing against mm-hmm. these unions. And it's always, it's like a, a militant group of, like the Koch brothers today, right? You can see their militant anti-unionism and anti-ideology is driving that. That's always going on. I don't see that as new. I don't see the Kochs as a new phenomenon, mm-hmm. even. You know, and, they and are. Nor did it stop. Going in the 50s. on throughout the 20th century. It's yeah. just how much of a base and how much are how successful are there. There's always got to be a counterforce. So, the Kochs are just the end result of the wayward, um, anti-radical uh, sentiment of much of the labor movement. You know, so that you purge the people who understand this and you bear the consequences of that decision making. And the labor movement was dead set on getting rid of its left flank. And and that's, you know, all the fighting, the willingness to fight back of workers um, 
was never fully organized because you had all this factionalism going on in the 50s through the 60s. Um, I mean, I experienced that when I, the first, one of the first things I did as a graduate student was offer to uh, write a history of the AFL, of, of the labor movement in St. Louis, a, a short history. And the, the guy who was head of the AFL-CIO then gave me marching orders. Well, he said, you can only write this if you don't have anything about socialism or communism in that history. So that's the way he began the conversation with me. Mm-hmm. These were the people who rose in, in, in that movement and were there when the labor movement is being crushed in the 1980s, um, you know, the beginning of, of that. And so it, it's really striking to me. I didn't end up writing it, obviously, because I, I said, well, how can you write it? You know, how can you? How can I even write a few pages? When, when, when the whole movement is started by social, in St. Louis, the movement had been started by socialists in the 1870s and 1880s, right? And had been, the, the head of the unions was a socialist up to the 1920s. 30s. Even the head of the AFL was an open socialist. So I'm like, okay, let me figure this one out. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of uh, my favorite, one of my favorite Fred Wright cartoons is uh, a, a, a worker with a picket sign that says, anti-communist union on strike, and the cop was beating his head and says, I don't care what kind of communist you are. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think that, I think that's pretty critical, the, you know, in terms of the ideas, is that it seems to me that that kind of, at least in in St. Louis, the way that the labor movement survives, you can think about it this way, is Emerson Electric gets a lot of war contracts and they completely um, decentralize everything else. It becomes one of the leading companies in the country by decentralizing and outsourcing everything. Eventually, they actually outsource Pentagon contracts to Mexico and abroad. It's pretty bizarre because you would think that there would be a security issue around that. But the um, the other is McDonnell Douglas. So that becomes these um, basically another kind of planning. If you think about the Missouri Valley Authority planning for war and the whole Cold War gives a new lease on life. Well, that that really reinforces a kind of um, mental derangement in the labor movement <laughs> that that says that our main job is to be patriotic um, and push an Americanist agenda and to make sure that we keep all those left-wingers out. And that's what I saw in the 1980s. That was still a very important ingredient in the labor movement in the St. Louis area. Only people like Jerry Tucker... In the UAW, they were challenging that and saying, you have to wake up here about what's really going on and about what capitalism is. Well, you couldn't use the word capitalism in the labor movement. You really couldn't. I mean, it's such a refreshing change in the present to be actually able to talk about what it is. Um, And people have to remember that that became impossible because of of this other agenda. You know what we haven't done? So Setner Mm. dies. When when does Mm. Setner die? He dies in early 1958, right after um, the the Yates decision. So 
the Yates decision, it, it overturns the, the legal basis of the Smith Act. You know, it basically says you have no evidence that they're actively overthrowing, so you can't persecute people on the basis of their ideas. Mm-hmm. It's a very important legal decision that seems to mean that they will stop being persecuted. Yet, he's already, his heart has just declined in the years in the years of fighting from 54 to 58 mainly the the threat of deportation is still there for his wife mm-hmm. and so there's what she said there's so much stress so he goes he has a heart attack i think it's his third heart attack so i think in that year between 54 and 58 he had three heart attacks the third one kills him mm-hmm. the last one and at that point, he's still working at Barnes yeah. as, a, as a carpenter. Um, and his wife is um, still living in their house in, in North St. Louis. Is that where? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she, she goes to sell it, and guess who tries to buy it? Who? One of the FBI informants. <laughs> it's like one of those unreal or surreal situations. Well, what, yeah, is, she w- what does that mean? Why would they want to buy the house? Oh, it was a well-kept house, I guess. Oh, I he was see. a carpenter, so he was keeping up. The, and so, yeah, they just, it was, it was, and also she thought the hubris of somebody who would sit there and testify against him. Yeah. And knowing, you know, I have to mention that I had the lucky access to um, Billy Sentner, William Sentner Jr. He had gotten the FBI reports on Sentner during this period that included a lot of information that would now not be um, available, but it would have been all redacted. And the reason I know this is I requested some FBI files and I got the FBI files fully redacted in the 1990s. They just, um, you know, would not make them available to me. And so I saw what the FBI was doing in a way that confirmed how committed he was they had a um, to democracy in his union beliefs and the his deep belief in american democracy so mm-hmm. they had um they authorized a wiretape top wiretap on him and he talks about this very eloquently well those were the files they denied him for the trial his son was intent on getting him so when the f FBI had a window in the 1970s where you could request these. He requested them. And there's some very eloquent statements by him in those files, basically saying, we have to trust American democracy. It might not be the, you know, it might not work all the time. So these, I think it's pretty ironic that that was what uh, the FBI was yeah, denying was the actual absolution. You know, so you could the, the trial they could have used those papers to exonerate him and to show people, um, you know, that he really did believe in American democracy. Um, do you know where his um, grave is? Here, let's see. Oh, it's it's, it's a Jewish cemetery. It's a Jewish cemetery. I think it's called Chesed uh, Shel Emeth. It's on an olive. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, Or is that wrong? Am I wrong about that? Yes, that's right. That's, that's what it right. says. So yeah, so his his grave his grave is there, and it's uh, there's nothing exceptional about it. It simply no. says the date and. But uh, it, you know the the I think the thing that impressed um, Mrs. Sentner the most is the thousands of people who came. She said there was three thousand people, by her count. 
who came to his funeral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And so uh, she said workers who wanted to pay their respect, um, and it really was deeply meaningful to her because, you know, this was still a time of, you know, the Red Scare and the charges against him. When you think of Setner's life, what do you think we we learn from him? Well, I think the connection between ideas and praxis, you know, of practice, that um, the possibilities for an openly radical, I mean, this was a time, there was never a time in the period in the early 20th century when um, socialism was fully acceptable, right? But they made the decision to be open about it and to openly talk to people. And they got a group of people who committed themselves to social transformation through the union movement. But it is an important part of what it means to have a vibrant labor movement historically, is to have a left being really accepted in a union brings is that you really can generate a movement that is really thinking about how unions can unions can be a force that challenges the central organizing premises of a capitalist society. So your book is called Radical Unionism in the Midwest, and we've got a, a, a website that we think we're going to get up and going about, yeah, about all of this. Yeah, you can see it. Yeah, you'll be able to see it. Um, you can see it now. It's part of the Wayback Machine, mm-hmm. and uh, anybody can access it that. But I hope that by the time this is broadcast, it will be back up at uh, radicalunionism.niu.edu. Okay. And um, I'm looking through this now, and it's it's this great website with all kinds of pictures with the people that we've been talking about and the strikes that we've been talking about. <laughs> Rosemary, I just want to say thank you for spending so much time with us and talking us through this history, which is completely, as far as I can tell, in, in St. Louis, it's not talked about. And uh, so we hope that this show goes a long way to, to um, you know, uh, to bringing a, a new generation of people to to know about this. Yeah, that's oh, fantastic. I appreciated having a, a chance to talk about it. Yeah. We've got a link to Rosemary's website on our Tumblr page and on our SoundCloud page. Uh, it's filled with information about William Setner and the United Electrical Workers Union. Lots of pictures from the uh, sit-down strike at Emerson to organizing in Osiris Erie to the Maytag strike. All super interesting if you're into, into labor history in the Midwest. You can always hit us up on our SoundCloud page and on Tumblr at smashuppodcast.com. Thanks for listening.